Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Jesus, Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer. Lord, thank you for this truth. Truth that is with us, truth that abides in us, truth that will be with us forever. Thank you, Lord, for your unchanging truth. In Jesus' name. As we approach the second half of this epistle of Second John, we notice a marked change in John's tone. From what he says in the first six verses to what he says now, and I will warn you right now that this message isn't going to be near as much fun as last week's. It's not a fun message. It's a necessary message. The likability factor of this message is going to be very different from last week. Because dealing with problems is never pleasant. And John is dealing with a problem. Let's go ahead and read this passage, starting with the seventh verse of Second John. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not know God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever, for whoever greets him takes a part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. After all the talk last week about love and truth being inseparable, how you can't practice love without preaching truth, you can't have truth without love, and that if we are to practice we are to practice truth and love in every situation. There aren't situations that demand truth and others that demand love. Every situation needs to be dealt with in truth and love. And after saying all of that, we read starting in, chapter, in verse 7, and it appears that John does exactly what we said last week that we can't do. It appears that he finished verse 6, and he reached in his pocket, and he pulled out the truth-love coin, and he flipped it, and it came up truth, and bam, he hits it hard. And you ask yourself, well, it's almost like, is John in conflict with himself? Or maybe John is just in conflict with the interpretation we gave the first six verses. I mean, it does kind of make you want to ask, John, where's the love? I get the truth part, I see that, but I'm not really feeling the love here. And you know, that's one of the disadvantages of expositional, book-by-book, verse-by-verse teaching. When you come to a passage that you don't particularly like, that's a little bit difficult maybe to explain or to accept, you can't just say, well, you know what, I feel like the Lord's leading me to preach on 1 Corinthians 13 today. <laughs> and you have to deal with it. Because that's, I mean, like I said, that's one of the disadvantages of it. Maybe we need to think of another way of preaching here, okay? And, and go find something else that's a little bit more agreeable. 
there is another way of dealing with that. If you're teaching and preaching expositionally and you're following the book as it goes along, you could just come up this week and preach this half in isolation from what he said in the first six verses and hope that last week people weren't paying attention or that they've forgotten it this week. But I've just reminded you about last week, so we can't do that either. So if you're going to deal honestly with Scripture, you have to tackle it. And you can't isolate it from its context. And John doesn't let you do it because look at the very first word in that verse 7, 4, three little letters. But if you're being honest with Scripture, you have to deal with those three letters in John by saying for or because. He's relating it to what he said in the first six verses. And he's telling us that the relationship basically is this, that because there are many deceivers that are gone out into the world and are bringing false teaching, we desperately need to be a church, a people that is united in truth and love and obedience to God's command. That is the type of church that is best equipped to protect itself and to combat false teaching. But we still have the problem, the tone. Where's the love? Some would say, well, in the first six verses, John is speaking about truth and love relationship among God's people. And now he's talking about God's people's relationship with false teachers. So that doesn't apply. But if we've just said truth and love are, not, are, are inseparable, how do we now separate the two in our dealings with false teachers? To speak of walking in truth and walking in love like we did last week has a wonderful ring to it. It sounds noble. It's very good. Uh, when you preach principle, you know, people are there with you. Amen. Uh, it's when it's theory. But John now is getting down to the nitty-gritty. Rubber meets the road. Real-life situation. And that's sometimes where things get a little bit dicey. So I've titled this message, Practicing Love and Truth. Practicing Truth and Love. And I want to deal with the passage under three main points. Reject false teaching, watch yourselves, and reject false teachers. And then after that, I want to make just a couple of observations in conclusion. So let's look at the first part of it. John kind of focuses in on somewhat some of the content, some of the false teaching that these false teachers, we're going to look at the false teachers in a moment, but he focuses in on some of the teaching. He says, For many deceivers have gone out in the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And then in verse 9, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So the con as we look at the content of the false teaching that John is talking about, uh, we, something strikes us. John doesn't really talk so much about what they are teaching. If you look at what he says, he, he speaks of it in a negative way and talks more about what they are not teaching. He says they do not confess the coming 
of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And John's use of the terminology and of the name Jesus Christ is very deliberate. We've become very accustomed to Jesus Christ as a name of Jesus. But it's much more than that, and you've heard that here many times from the pulpit. Uh, Jesus is his human name. This is Jesus identifying him as a man. Christ is a title, the anointed one, the Old Testament Messiah. And so the name Jesus Christ recognizes the nature of Jesus the man, the nature of Christ God as coexisting in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the Gnostics who have been named as uh, probably the target of some of John's writing here had no problem recognizing that Jesus came in the flesh and they would have many good things to say about Jesus as a man. What they could not accept was that the Christ of God had come in the flesh and so they would distinguish between Christ and Jesus. And Jesus, uh, John identifies Jesus with the Christ over and over. In his gospel, you will read of people coming into contact with Jesus and their reaction being, is this not the, the Christ, the Messiah? In John eleven twenty seven, Martha says to, to Jesus himself, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. In John 20, 31, John says that many things were done by Christ who, that, which are not written in his gospel, but he said these that are written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. In 1 John chapter 2, he tells us, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. When you deny the Son, you deny the Father. 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. But you notice John does not say that they come denying that Jesus is the Christ. He says they come not confessing that Jesus is. Christ came in the flesh. They don't confess it. They are literally the ones not confessing Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. They are the not confessing ones. The Gnostics would readily confess that Christ came into the flesh or that Christ came upon the flesh that Christ came upon Jesus the man, but Christ wasn't Jesus, and Jesus wasn't Christ, wasn't the, the Christ. They deny that God, the Messiah, became one of us to bear our sin, to bring us redemption through his blood, when his, that his material body was nailed to a cross in redemption f through his blood, and that when his material body was nailed to the cross, it was buried, it was materially, corporally, physically risen from the dead. Hebert has a comment here that's interesting that I wanted to put up on the screen for you. He says, they avoided a, dir a direct denial of the incarnation, but they were subtle enough to counterfeit that basic apostolic teaching through the teaching they brought. 
What a professed Christian teacher deliberately refuses to acknowledge in dealing with doctrinal matters may be just as revealing as what he does openly reject. The refusal of these false teachers to acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh was in fact a repudiation of that concept. John never speaks of Christ coming into the flesh. He either speaks of him as coming in the flesh or that he became flesh. And that is what they do not confess. In other words, the first part of the content of their teaching is that they stop short of recognizing and confessing, saying the same thing about Jesus that God's word tells us, that says about him. They would come short of what scripture teaches. And that's one aspect of false teaching. The next one we see in verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. They would go on ahead. The word go on ahead is the word trespass or to overstep or leave or depart or abandon. They go beyond the teaching of God's word. We would call them religious progressives. They feel like they have matured and they're, they've gotten beyond the simple truths. And so they're, they have special knowledge and that goes right along with what we've heard about Gnosticism. Uh, they, they had special knowledge. They had their own truth. So how could you challenge them? And they're constantly getting new knowledge that only they have access to. And John says, if they go beyond what the teaching, the doctrine is, they're false teachers. How perverse is the heart of man? God gives us truth, and we don't accept it or don't accept all of it. Or God gives us truth, and we say, oh, but there's more. We sin on both sides of it. The person, the nature, and the work of Jesus Christ is paramount. And false teaching will almost always involve, among other, other falsehood, will al almost always involve false teaching in the person of Jesus Christ and who he is. It will either stop short of what the scriptures teach, or it will go beyond what scriptures teach. So in the light of the deceivers that have gone out into the world, how should we respond? What counsel or warning does John give? Does he tell us, okay, these false teachers are coming. Be on your guard against them. Watch out for them. You need to be very, very understanding about what they teach so that you're ready for them when they come. The truth of the matter was, as John writes, these false teachers had already come into their midst. So what does he tell? Watch out for them? No, he says, watch out for yourselves. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. Jesus warned his disciples, see that no one leads you astray. John warns the church in Philadelphia, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Don't think that you can't be fooled by false teaching. The subtle hiding of certain beliefs and tenets of heresy can deceive the most astute. 
And for that reason, Paul tells the Corinthians, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, John is not admonishing us to become heresy-focused. I've known heresy sniffer-outers in my life. And you know, it's a joyless life. Paul, writing to Timothy, tells him what to focus on. He says in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will both save yourself and your hearers. Don't go beyond truth. Don't fall short and not accept what God teaches us. 1 John 2.24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. The subtle hiding of certain beliefs and false teaching may be, can be very extremely deceiving. But sniffing out and living a life focused on error is not to be the focus of our life. I love what happened this morning. Uh, Jason said, John tells us in 2 John that many deceivers have gone out into the world. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. And then he said, so let's sing together about the wondrous mystery that Christ came to earth robed in frail humanity. What did we do? We affirmed the truth. We affirmed the truth that was being denied. We don't focus on the heresy. We focus on the truth. You know, focusing on heresy brings about just, just about as much joy as focusing on your life, focusing in your life on avoiding cancer. It's joyless. We affirm truth. We affirm doctrine. And then John speaks about not losing what we have worked for and receiving a full reward. You know, God promises to reward a life of faithful obedience and service. And he wants our reward to be a full reward. He's not talking about our salvation. But he's talking about rewards that he has promised to faithfulness. And he says that if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And the ground that we have gained by arduous labor, persistent faithfulness, humble submission and obedience to the word of God can be lost by the seduction of the enemy. Let's think of it as a race. Think of it as a long race. Paul says that in a race, a, a, a race in our existence, only one receives the prize, right? The winner. Of course, we've, we've kind of... Uh, extended that a little bit, and usually it's the first three now. And now we give participation trophies, but that's another story too. Um, but Paul says, run that you, plural, may obtain. He's saying in this race, everybody can win the prize. 
We're all eligible to win it. But he says you've got to run in such a way as to win it. Now the reward that we are winning is not awarded in comparison by what we do in comparison to what everybody else does. It is awarded by what we do in comparison to what God has given us to do with the gifts that he has given us. So let's think of a race. We want a race that's long enough to represent a life. It's not a 100-yard dash. So what's a race that would, could adequately represent a whole life? Okay, everybody thinks marathon? Well, I, I can go you one better. There's a race that's called an ultra marathon. And usually anything over 100 miles is considered a, an ultra marathon. Now, Mark Monikowski, who sings in the choir, has run an ultra marathon. He ran one of the races that's considered to be one of the three most difficult races in the world, 208 miles long in the state of Washington. Okay? That's long enough to represent a life, right? I mean, that's more than I'll ever race in my lifetime. I mean, combined, my whole life. <laughs> Mark had a 105-hour limit to finish that race. He finished in 84. But, and he, he finished 27th out of 211 that started the race. That race had 47,000 feet of ascents and a light number of descents. It had ups and downs. So that pretty well represents a life, doesn't it? You say, wow. You have to admire that. I guess so, but you know what that inspires? That inspires in me questions about possible insanity, personally. <laughs> but Mark ran the race. Now let's suppose that Mark starts off and he gets way ahead of everybody. I mean, he is so far ahead. And he has time to enjoy the scenery as he runs and some of that, and I've seen pictures of part of that race and it was very rugged terrain. And he has time to admire the scenery. He comes to an aid station. They have aid stations there. And you can ask for just about any food you want to eat, and they'll give it to you. He'll say, he'll, he might tell them, look, I'm going to sleep for 45 minutes, and you wake me up. Now, suppose that he sleeps for 45 minutes. They wake him up. And Mark says, oh, I just, I just can't go. And he turns over and goes back to sleep, and he sleeps for eight hours. And he gets up, finally, he starts to run, and he just can't get it going. But he was so far ahead. And he stops to enjoy certain things. That, and he finally straggles in, and he just barely beats the 105-hour time limit. Now, we're supposing in this race that everybody who finishes gets a prize. But the better you finish, the better the reward. So if he straggles in at the last, after being so far ahead, is he going to get a full reward? You know what he got? He got a belt buckle and a mug. All right? But he's not going to get a full reward. Why? Because he had gained so much, and then he lost it. He lost what he had gained. And this is what Paul warns us about. 
He says, let those who are mature think this way. If, anything you think other, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. How did we gain? Have you gained ground in your Christian life? How did you gain it? You know how we gain in the Christian life? We gain in the Christian life by, <clears throat> by loving the truth, by loving in the truth, by, be, by loving because of the truth, by growing in grace, mercy, and peace in truth and love, by walking in truth and walking in love. And so John exhorts us, he commands us to watch out for ourselves in the light of false teaching. So now John goes on and he speaks about the false teachers. If anyone comes to you, does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked ways. Before, before we deal with this, I want to go back and look at what John says about the character of these false teachers. In verse 7, he calls them deceivers. They're deceitful. The word deceivers has the idea in it of straying or roving or moving about. And he's not talking about itinerant preachers. He's talking about straying when it comes to the truth, straying when it comes to doctrine. And he says about them in Jude 12, these are blemishes, and he's talking about false teachers, these are blemishes on your love feast as they feast with you without fear, looking at themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds. That gives you the idea of straying in, the, in, in a doctrinal sense. In 2 Peter 2.17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by the storm. They're deceivers. But the word is talking about those who would entice others to stray from the truth. In fact, he says in verse 7 that many have gone, many deceivers have gone out and many uh, many expositors believe that he is speaking of men who were in the church, were under the sound of the truth. They heard the truth, and then they went out from the truth, and now they are deliberately, intentionally, mischievously enticing others to stray from the truth. In 1 John 2.19, and John might be echoing this when he says they've gone out. In 1 John 2.19, he says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. So they're men who have heard the truth, who know the truth, and have rejected the truth. They don't merely teach false doctrine. They intentionally mislead people to draw them away from the truth. In second place, he calls them antichrist. And there are several... Uh, several places where John talks about antichrists in the plural, and they embody the character and the qualities of the antichrist that we read about later in Revelation. So, in these two areas, as a deceiver, they seek to lead men astray from the truth. 
as antichrist, they seek to replace the true Christ with a counterfeit Christ of their own devising. Didn't Jesus warn his disciples, many will come in my, way, in my name, saying I am the Christ. John has harsh words for them. He calls them liars, false prophets, deceivers, antichrists, seducers. And if you look at verse 9, he tells us about the condition of their heart. Why do they do this? They do not have God. They're not of God. And it comes from the heart. And then he says, but those who abide in the teaching has the Father and the Son. So what should our response be? What is our response to false teachers? What should we do? In verse 10, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, John is speaking of a very particular situation here that was common in his day, not so common in our day. You recall when Jesus sent out the 70 the 70. Uh, to different towns and villages, he told them that when they came into a town, and if they came to a home, came to a city, and they met people there, and they met somebody in a home who was willing to put them up, to show them hospitality, he said, don't go from house to house. Stay with them as long as you're in that city. Stay there. Well, in John's day, there were many people who would go out, many teachers who would go out, and they would go from town to town. They would go to established churches. And they would teach. And there were inns in those days that they could stay in. But the inns were normally had a horrendous reputation. They were notoriously dangerous for robbery or, or worse. They were very unsafe places health-wise. They were dirty and so God's people would open, graciously open their homes and they would take these, these teachers in so that they could teach the word. And um, we have that example in, in, uh, in Acts when John came to Philippi. Lydia was the first European con con uh, convert. <laughs> and... She said, if you have judged me worthy, come to my house. And it says she basically compelled them to stay in her house. And during the time that they were in Philippi, they stayed with her. Hospitality, hospitality is commanded uh, many times in Scripture, Romans 12, 13, 1 Timothy 3, 3, and, and many other places. However, some of these false teachers were taking advantage of this situation of the hospitality of Christian people. They would come in, and they would very subtly introduce heresy the whole time that they were being put up and cared for and fed by the people of God. Sometimes these teachers would seek out somebody who was prominent in the city and stay with them 
And these false teachers would use their association with these believers who were prominent to increase their credibility. And these people hosting a a teacher like this basically made you his sponsor. And they would use their association with you to gain credibility. And John is saying, you've got to stop doing that. You can't do that. Don't allow them into your home. Don't give them any kind of greeting. Now, seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? Where's the love? It's easy to, say, to see that John is, seeing that, is saying this to defend the truth. Okay, we, we, we get that. But this seems to be like one side of the truth love coin. But I want to suggest to you very quickly five ways in which this attitude and this response to false teachers demonstrates love. Number one, it demonstrates love for God. You cannot love God and participate in what he calls evil or wicked. The word that's translated wicked in, in the version that we use here is translated evil in many contexts. And it's actually used to describe Satan himself. So it's a very strong term. And John is saying you can't participate in their work by showing them hospitality. Number two, it demonstrates love for the truth. You cannot love truth and embrace the lie. Number three, it demonstrates love for God's people. You can't love the people of God and approve by your actions that which is deadly to God's people and to his church. Number four, it demonstrates love for the lost. You cannot love the lost and be indifferent to teaching and teachers that will damn their souls. And number five, it demonstrates love for the one who is teaching false doctrine. Say, how, how, does, how do you figure that? Do we hate the soul of a false teacher? We hate his teaching. We hate what he's doing. But we would love for him to come to the truth and renounce his false teaching. And by showing him hospitality and accepting him, all we're doing is affirming him in his way. But to reject what he's doing is showing him love. Doesn't mean we have to scream and holler. I, I personally believe that if somebody comes to my house with the express purpose of teaching false doctrine, he's coming as a teacher of false doctrine, I don't let them in my house. I know there are people who do. In fact, I remember my dad on several occasions inviting them in, and I remember some very, very lively and heated discussions. By the end of it, it was a whole lot more heat than light. And honestly, I mean, only God knows, but you have to say, what was accomplished by that? I remember a man in Spain who was in our church in the early days, 
and he was a very gruff man, real deep, gruff, raspy voice. And uh, uh, just to give you an idea, we had not been there very long. We were still struggling with Spanish. We were newly married. We had been married about a year, and uh, we were living in a new culture, a new country. We were struggling with the language. So every, every kind of insecurity you can have, we, we had. And we invited this couple. They were an older couple. I think they were in their 50s. And so, you know, hoping that we can communicate with them. And I don't remember. I bet you Teresa remembers the exact menu. The first bite he took, he looked over at Teresa and he said, Teresa, I not like. <laughs> Definitely a truth guy. You know, not, not a love guy at all. <laughs> and I was telling him one day about some, some Mormon missionaries who had come to my house. And I couldn't have had them in if I wanted to. But I was explaining to them that I was not going to allow them in, and I wouldn't. And he said, oh, no. No, no, no. Here's what you do. He says, you invite them in. He says, this is what I do. He said, I invite them in. And I sit down, sit down, let's talk. Yes, we'd love to chat with you. And offer him a beer. He knew that being Mormons, they would turn it down anyway. And so he said, let's talk. Let's talk. And then I destroy them. <laughs> I don't think that we have to do that. I don't think that's what John is saying. But we don't back them up in what they're doing. So, let me close with two observations. This whole epistle of John is written presupposing that we can know truth. If you're going to reject false teachers, you have to know the truth. And so John is understanding and saying that we can know the truth. Um, in fact, he says in 1 John 2, I've not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. John 7, 17, he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking in my own authority. In John 8, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Truth can be known. We're, we're living in a day when if you say that you have the truth, or you know the truth, you are extremely arrogant. And the big thing now is my truth and your truth. I remember the vice president of our country speaking about a girl who had spoken up about her gender identity, and he, she just praised her and said, she has such courage to come out here and speak her truth. And her truth, if it's her truth, what can you say against it? But this isn't a problem from today only. From the Garden of Eden, when God spoke to Eve and Eve spoke to the serpent and told him what God had said, he basically said to her, now let's talk about what God said. What did he really say? And what didn't he say? And he caused her to doubt the truth of what God had told her. When Jesus stood before Pilate, he said, for this purpose I was born 
and have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? Jesus was saying to him, Pilate, I have come to bring the truth. You can know truth. And Pilate said, no, you can't. And he turned around and walked out. So how do we end this passage? We can know the truth. John promises that. How do we end this passage on a positive note? This has not been very positive. I've warned you at the beginning. You could have gotten up and walked out if you wanted to because I told you this is not a fun one. But look at John, how John ends. Verse 12, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. In spite of the dangers represented by the false teaching around us, the deceitfulness, we can live a life of joy. And focusing on the error does not produce joy. What is it that produces joy? This whole passage highlights the blessing and the joy of knowing the truth. In verse 4 of 2 John, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. In 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Knowing the truth brings joy. Loving the truth brings joy. Loving in truth brings joy. Loving because of the truth brings joy. Receiving grace, mercy, and peace in truth and love brings joy. And walking with your brothers and sisters in truth and love brings joy. The truth of the matter is a truthful life is a joyful life. Lord, thank you for your truth. Lord, thank you for a truth that is in us. It abides in us. It remains in us. And it will be with us forever. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the joy of knowing your truth. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Lord, help us to walk in truth, and to walk in love. In Jesus' name.